0: Welcome to Word on the Block, the series that takes a deeper dive into the world of blockchain and adjacent emerging technologies like AI, 5G and IoT, quantum, all at the intersection of business, politics and economy. It's what we cover right here on Forecast News. Well, multi-trillion dollar relief efforts, monetary stimulus never ending, never ceasing and a global economy that is on the brink. So what does this mean for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? Has the moment arrived for mass adoption? institutional investment into Bitcoin as a hedge against monetary policies that have run amok. We're going to explore all of that. I'm Editor-in-Chief Angie Lau, Forecast News. And these are questions that Kevin Kelly covers a lot with his team at Delphi Digital, a New York-based independent research boutique providing institutional-grade analysis on the wide world of digital assets. So Kevin, it is great to have you back on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, these are interesting times. These are stressed times. And in the midst of all of this, you just launched your State of Bitcoin report. And it's a pretty comprehensive look in assessing the cryptocurrency. Uh, Digital gold, hedge play, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's assess why, especially right now as we remain locked in place as COVID-19 rages on, what's happening in terms of the global dynamics that's, that's driving moves in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency right now?
1: Yeah, well, first off, thanks so much for having me back. Always love to catch up with you. And yes, it is certainly um, a a very interesting time in the world of kind of global macro, especially as you're starting to see more interest in Bitcoin and crypto assets. And I think, you know, we came out with this data Bitcoin report, as you mentioned last week, um, in part because yes, the Bitcoin halving was certainly a major event. um, But I don't necessarily think it was just the fact that you had the issuance cut in half, I think the Bitcoin having uh, the timing of which you know we had this this most recent having is almost more significant, right? Because if you think about what happened and on a programmatic kind of set schedule, um, everything went off pretty seamless in terms of Bitcoin's uh, own uh, programmable monetary policy, reducing its issuance rate of, of BTC coming to market at a time when the backdrop is this kind of world of fiat abundance that you were just alluding to, and you had have, you know, I think right now policymakers, as we start to, I won't say get used to this new normal, but as we're starting to get into, you know, the third month or so of this COVID nineteen, um, uh, the aftermath of COVID nineteen, and we're starting to start to deal with that. I think policymakers right now sit at a very critical juncture because. What, we, what we've seen is, yes, multi-trillion dollar monetary and fiscal stimulus uh, efforts and programs to try and keep the motor running, I guess you could say, on the global economy, because this isn't obviously just a U.S. issue. This is something that's happening globally. So you've seen global policymakers really kind of come together um, in terms of the amount. Um, and I guess you could say even the speed at which they've, they've brought the stimulus uh, into the market and trying to, to to keep markets afloat. But I think policymakers right now are at a very critical juncture because, I think the idea of a V-shaped recovery is starting to, or the odds of that are starting to dwindle by the day. And so people are starting to really wake up to the longer term impacts of, of what's going on in this, again, new normal we're going to be in uh, or this paradigm shift after COVID um, uh, wanes or the, 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 uh, the aftermath wanes a bit. And what I think is important is policymakers are going to be forced to basically address two different paths. They can either, you know, address this by continuing to pump money into the markets and creating these large kind of fiscal stimulus efforts to, again, keep the lights on. Or, you know, they can take the more fiscally conservative route and, and risk potentially even greater economic damage, in which case they would most likely have to come in and provide some relief anyway, in oftentimes a much more dramatic form. And so right now, how that kind of all ties back into the outlook for Bitcoin is, I think you've seen an acceleration in terms of, you know, not only the public, but the institutional awareness of what's happening right now. People really waking up to and asking the simple questions of where is this money coming from? How is the Fed able to, you know, print as much money as it is? How can you have the Fed's balance sheet expand by, you know, north of three trillion dollars in such a such a short period of time? And people are starting to wake up to what the long-term, you know, ramifications or consequences of that will be. And that was really driving a lot of the interest, both from a retail perspective, but also from an institutional perspective, um, into Bitcoin and and then, you know, more broadly, crypto assets.
0: Yeah, I mean, to your point, Paul Tudor Jones, uh, legendary name in hedge funds, uh, he's not the first but possibly the the first one who's truly opening the doors uh, for a lot of uh, peers and institutional and accredited uh, investors to join alongside his bet into Bitcoin. He uh, very he's made headlines essentially saying that uh, up to two percent of his holdings at the moment. Uh, is in Bitcoin. I mean, this, this kind of green lights a lot of the thinking uh, on Bitcoin, especially uh, during these macroeconomic headwinds, as you've, as you've highlighted. What does that sentiment mean for cryptocurrency markets, for liquidity?
1: Absolutely. I, I think you have it on the head. I think it certainly sets a, a pretty large tailwind for, you know, Bitcoin and crypto more broadly, because, again, if, if you go through and you you listen to to him talk or you go through their investor letter, it's not as if, you know, they're putting all their eggs into the Bitcoin basket. Right. He basically lays out the argument um, that a lot of us have been, you know, at least trying, trying to make or trying to get into the mainstream for a little while now. And he does it very elegantly. And he, and he looks at it and he says, you know, Even if you're just a rational actor and you're taking a probability-weighted bet, right? The odds that of, of asymmetric returns and its return profile for Bitcoin is so high that a one to two percent allocation, right, can actually, you know, be quite material on the upside. But on the downside, even hypothetically, if there's a non-zero chance Bitcoin goes to zero, you know, it's not like, you know, they're betting the house on on this move. And when he talks about, you know, what's going to be the fastest horse in this in this kind of environment, this kind of race, I just think what he did and um, what what their firm did um, with that note and really kind of taking the rational, pragmatic approach not only gave, you know, investors, a lot of institutions kind of a wake up call saying, okay, we need to look at this again, but it also gave everyone kind of the green light because again, you don't necessarily want to be the first person in the water when it comes to something like Bitcoin or an emerging asset class. Um, But now that you have somebody, you know, of that caliber that has come out publicly and said, you know, they're investing in this space and looking to invest, you know, potentially even more in this space. um, I certainly think that that, Um, has a lot of people over the last couple of weeks going back to kind of the pad and paper and, and doing their own due diligence right now. Um, and I can say, you know, from our standpoint, we've certainly seen an increase in inbound inquiries, just wondering again, from more sophisticated investors, you know, what, what is the the risk return profile of Bitcoin, you know, what are the metrics they should be looking at how do they understand this asset, um, this emerging asset class. And so it seems like, you know, it was, a, it was a one day kind of headline type event. But I certainly think to your point, the longer term um, ripples of that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to continue to see.
0: Yeah, two things that he's saying very clearly about it, which is concern about the strength of the U.S. dollar, global economy, stimulus, that really dilutes uh, fiat currency. That's one. But secondly, also... um, valuing Bitcoin beyond its utility case and really seeing it as its own version of digital gold. I mean, he very famously uh, made a huge gold play in his early career that really settled him into legendary status. Um, those two things are, are are coming to a head for for Bitcoin almost.
1: Absolutely. And yeah, him saying that Bitcoin reminds him a lot of, of gold in the early 70s, I think definitely tipped the hat for a lot of people as well, um, just given his track record and given his, his prior um, um, investment experience with, with precious metals. I think what's interesting, <clears throat> excuse me, what's interesting there as well is when you talk about, you know, a lot of crypto adversaries, I guess you'd say point to the fact that Bitcoin you know, isn't backed by anything, right? And and a lot of people come back and say, okay, well, what's a dollar backed by? And then there's this whole kind of back and forth. And I think what's really interesting and unique and, and honestly quite fascinating about Bitcoin is the more people you talk to, the more perspectives you get on how subjective Bitcoin's value is. And what I mean by that is in my from my perspective for example today you know i would say sure maybe bitcoin's not backed by anything tangible but if you want to talk about the demand for a you know non-sovereign apolitical uh, digitally native hard cap supply censorship resistant uh, you know digital asset if i find i find value in that and if there's a whole cohort of people who find value in that um, and again, the way in which the world is accelerating towards, right, and the, and the whole deglobalization move, and you can even toss populism in there if you wanted to, um, the, the 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 demand for that type of asset that's extremely unique, I certainly think, you know, warrants uh, a certain value, or, or I could put a, a price tag on that. And so I think what's really interesting is just the kind of evolution of how... People are starting to value Bitcoin or think about Bitcoin. And what fascinates me again is I don't necessarily think there's ever going to be um, one perfect metric or indicator evaluation methodology to come up with, you know, what, what the intrinsic value of, of something like Bitcoin, um, you know, should be.
0: I mean, that's a philosophical uh, dilemma, right? But at the end of the day, if you're going to ask people to back this with a price, you know, it's got to be tied to something that people can calculate, that can take a look at metrics or formula that associates the value of Bitcoin against the value of other assets. And so in that, as we try to figure out what the fundamentals uh, are in this space i mean is is that an impossibility still, or are we starting to see um, the real fundamentals starting to be defined for bitcoin right now
1: yeah it's it 's a really great question it 's what we spend a lot of our time um, contemplating and trying to work on. I would say if you fast forward to today versus even twelve months ago, I certainly think that fundamentals are becoming um, more widespread or more accepted but the but when we talk about fundamentals, I think it's important to note that. Um, those also can be a bit subjective as well, right? Because again, you know, looking at something like Bitcoin versus, um, you know, Apple stock is a very easy example. The fundamentals you would evaluate uh, Apple on would be very different than Bitcoin, right? We know that. What, what I think the challenge and the excitement is, is trying to come up with ways in which you create these new fundamental indicators using things like on-chain analysis. I'll give you a really quick example. We look at things like UTXOs, which are unspent transaction outputs for Bitcoin. And basically what that allows us to do, is you can see across the entire Bitcoin network, The last time Bitcoin was moved and based on what the price was at that time, you can create these really interesting um, longer term kind of trends and look at different uh, cohorts of holders, right? So people who have held Bitcoin or the amount of Bitcoin that hasn't moved in six months, in a year, in five years. And what that allows you to do that you actually can't really do in other asset classes is, is that transparency actually allows you to create these really interesting fundamental metrics. And you can look at um, kind of how the behavior of the trend, the holder trends um, change over time, change through different Bitcoin cycles. And again, maybe it's not something that is um, as ubiquitous as a price to earnings ratio today for you know the stock market, for example. But I think a lot of these metrics and these fundamental um, um, on-chain metrics are starting to become more of the um, kind of standard for which people are at least evaluating or getting an idea of where Bitcoin could be trending, what its price would be, you know, things of that nature.
0: Do you think we're going to get to a a point um, uh, in the next couple of months where um, we're going to start seeing a much more steady rate of growth and or even limited bands of volatility. I mean, the one thing that just turns so many people off right now, massive swings upside, downside, Mm -hmm. and it's really just hard to calibrate.
1: Yeah, no, and and it's certainly, I would say, especially when you talk about you know, we, we kind of group in institutional investors into this giant bucket. But even if you go outside that space and you look at, you know, financial advisory or private wealth management, that's a massive market with a ton of capital we've got. We've seen, again, an increase in the amount of um, RIA or wealth management clients that we actually serve and talk to. And that is one of the biggest, um, I won't necessarily say complaints, but hesitations is just the volatility. And oftentimes, yes, you have to address that. You have to understand um, that this is going to be a volatile asset on an interest day basis or an intra week basis but i think two points that we typically tend to point towards is one a lot of the times when you see these massive sell offs in bitcoin oftentimes those actually present pretty attractive entry opportunities because the market is able to bounce back relatively quickly. A lot of times it's more technical sell-offs or liquidations because people are, are using leverage, things of that nature. So they're much more short-term in nature. And if you look out over longer periods of time, whether it's you know 60 days, 90 days, or looking over a full year, that volatility um, is still certainly higher than other asset classes, but it's not as volatile as I think a lot of people expect. The second uh, point that we tend to to um, kind of push people towards is the fact that volatility in itself, I think, um, is often misunderstood as well, because there are two sides to volatility, right? You have your downside volatility, and your upside volatility. And if we want, if we as a, a collective group, we'll call us our, our the Bitcoiners, right, who, who really truly believe in what this thing can be long term, and we expect it to have very outsized returns over the next, let's call it 10 years or so, um, we it's almost like we're trying to have our cake eat it too. You have to take the good with the bad. So if you want excess upside volatility for a certain asset, um, then you're going to have to accept the fact that there are going to be times in which it rears its ugly twin head, and you're going to have you know massive sell-offs or uh, potentially you know 30, 40, even 50% drawdowns. And so if you have that longer-term conviction, that's why we feel strongly that it's important to have you know a long-term conviction. Um, and understand kind of the thesis and the reasons why you think that, you know, Bitcoin or other crypto assets will have value long term, because that'll help you hold steady in those times and even potentially, you know, add a little bit to your positions at opportune moments when you see these drawdowns and sell offs. And and it becomes more of, again, thinking about it from an opportunity perspective, rather than, you know, I just lost 40% of my Bitcoin holdings because, you know, there was a, a huge kind of cascading liquidation effect that happened on one of these, you know, largely unregulated exchanges.
0: Speaking of which, I mean, a lot of these uh, <laughs> Bitcoin derivative trading platforms have become really popular uh, over the past few years. Regulators around the world don't always appreciate it. They've, they've uh, certainly taken a keen interest. Um, we're seeing a lot of it drive volumes, but... Mm-hmm. How has that impacted the market? And secondly, if regulators start to shut down, wind down um, and start policing uh, as as we're already seeing them do, how does that affect the liquidity in the market? How how does it affect the marketplace?
1: Yeah, so I think um, I'll, I'll, I'll take those kind of in reverse. I think if you start to see more regulatory scrutiny around some of these exchanges, um, and I, I won't you know, name them by name, but we can all think of the handful that are kind of, again, ubiquitous within the, the crypto world if you're trading these assets, um, certainly shutting something like that down or even kind of geofencing around um, certain regions uh, would have an adverse effect on the liquidity profile, especially of a lot of these alternative crypto assets that really only trade on maybe a handful of centralized exchanges, if that and then potentially some of these Emerging decentralized ones, so liquidity profile would certainly take a hit. Um, I would say also you can look at um, you know the, the derivatives volume, or even you're seeing you know CME come in with futures, and that open interest and that volume has certainly increased quite substantially recently as you see more institutional interest. You can start to kind of pair. Um, these narratives around, you know, how I guess organic some of these price moves are, or or um, downtrends or uptrends within, you know, an asset like Bitcoin, um, if it is being driven more so by, you know, the spot market where you have, you know, kind of true organic buying, or maybe it's potentially being driven just by, to your point, a lot of people levering up and taking these these kind of long uh, margin positions um, that can unwind very very quickly on the on the on the downside. So there's no, I wouldn't say there's any. Um, kind of perfect answer to it. I don't think you're going to have regulators really um, take a hard, hard look at this until this asset class becomes bigger. But that's what we would expect if we want, um, again, more institutions to come in and more people to have access to these assets. If this market's going to become, um, you know, mature asset class, um, then the regulatory scrutiny and, and regulation um, is, is a byproduct of that.
0: You know, one of the things that I always appreciate uh, what you guys do at Delphi Digital is taking the macroeconomic context and placing it atop uh, what's happening in the cryptocurrency space. Having said that, you know, beyond COVID, beyond global economic headwinds right now because of COVID, how are you also factoring uh, in the stimulus and and, uh, central bank-backed digital currency initiatives around the world? How do you factor this into a broader cryptocurrency or Bitcoin market play?
1: Yeah, I think the topic of central bank digital currencies, I think at this point, just has too much momentum um, to reverse or, or, or go the other way. So I, I certainly think that, you know, five, 10 years from now, the world is going to be, you know, digitally currency driven. Um, and on one hand, you can make the argument that in that type of environment that type of world as more people um you know i sit in the millennial generation but as older generations become more comfortable with you know that that digitally kind of native world um you can make the argument that that could be a, a acceleration or a gateway for people to get involved in, you know, the digital asset, the emerging digital asset market and hold things like Bitcoin. The flip side to that and, and my, where my concerns around, you know, the rise of these central bank digital currencies comes in is obviously just the flip side of, of the technological advance in terms of surveillance and ways in which um, you know, these governments could potentially limit uh, the way in which you use that currency. Right. And again, I don't necessarily foresee some type of huge revolutionary moment where it's you know literally an us versus them, um, and and people are are um, you know literally left you know bloody in the streets or anything like that. But I do think it's going to be an increasingly large part of the conversation of, as we move to a world of trying to increase privacy and um, trying to. Uh, uh, increase the kind of digital nativeness of a lot of not only our business models, but some of these assets, coupled with the fact that you now have a potential backdoor lever for governments to have a greater oversight into what you're doing. I think I sit in the camp with a more optimistic camp that I think it'll be more of, again, a gateway to you know the digital asset world. But there are certainly risks um, that we won't face for at least a few years, but are certainly starting to become part of the conversation now that I think people um, you know, should, should at least be aware of.
0: Do you think it's going to dilute uh, people's interest in holding cryptocurrency or Bitcoin?
1: Not, I don't think necessarily because when you think about what a what a central bank digital currency would even represent, right? It's basically you know the digitally native version of fiat currencies today, right? It's still going to be largely affected and influenced by the monetary policy of whatever um, country or government agency is the one that issues it. And so, if you take a digital dollar, for example, um, a central bank, you know, Fed, we'll call it a Fed dollar for lack of a better term, um, that the the amount of Fed dollars and the uh, uh, money supply and things of that nature will still be governed by, you know, a central uh, party in the Fed. It's not like the dollar is going to be um, uh, some type of decentralized version of uh, the USD today. Right. So I think it is also important um, to put in perspective because that still bolsters the case for holding something like Bitcoin, because again, this whole digital scarcity, you know, narrative and concept, I think, is going to continue to gain traction in a world of, you know, fiat abundance.
0: I mean, there's no doubt that you guys are very busy trying to figure out all of these uh, headwinds and tailwinds. Um, We recently spoke to Tim Draper, who uh, uh, is making a call that Bitcoin is going to reach a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, by 2023, uh, beginning of 2023, um, taking a look at the fundamentals, taking a look at uh, you know the macro, the micro, uh, the the markets, all of that, the recent having, the future havings, is that a possibility? Do you see that price range coming to fruition?
1: I certainly would not uh, complain about Bitcoin hitting two hundred and fifty thousand uh, within the next two to three years. Certainly, but is I it think, realistic? Yeah, so I think it's realistic, but in a longer time horizon. I don't think we get there by twenty twenty three, um, and the reason for that is. The way in which you'll see institutions come into this space, a lot of it will be kind of top of the funnel. A lot of them will get attracted to Bitcoin. A lot of them, quite frankly, might even just find the value proposition of Bitcoin uh, more attractive than some of these other alternative crypto assets. But at the same time, um, I think you get to more of a you know, one, maybe two trillion, probably two trillion dollar market cap for Bitcoin potentially in that time frame, um, which puts you, I mean, closer to, you know, you could, you could see six figure Bitcoin within the next, you know, three to four years, certainly. Um, because again, the starting point, I think matters immensely. If you look at, you know, we did a simple exercise in a recent kind of daily note that we put out. And if you look at, you know, the gold market versus Bitcoin, which is, you know, often compared to one another, um, it's, 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 Potentially, uh, you could get into a situation where gold, in kind of nominal dollar terms, actually the total value of gold increases. You know by multitudes or magnitudes more than you know the Bitcoin market does. But at the same time, that doesn't make gold necessarily a better investment because if you had six trillion flood into the gold gold market, but you had a trillion flood into Bitcoin, your annualized return over the next 10 years would still be four to five X on holding Bitcoin today, right? So the, the point being starting points certainly matter. I just think when you get to um, a certain when you're talking about you know 20x type returns over a shorter time period. Um, to say it's impossible, absolutely not. I just think a lot of uh, things kind of have to go right for it to hit, you know, quarter of a million, you know, within within that time frame. Uh,
0: a lot of things have to go right and or a lot of things have to go wrong, which yeah, is kind, yes, of, what yes. we're, kind exactly. of what we're experiencing <laughs> right now. Um, look, your State of Bitcoin report, very comprehensive. Top takeaways for our audience.
1: Yeah, I would say from a macro perspective, we kind of laid a lot of them out here. Um, Getting into some of the other uh, pieces that uh, two of my partners worked on, did an incredible job on, Um, we go through some of the kind of upgrade, uh, uh, upcoming upgrades, things of that nature for people who are a little more technical or or interested in that. Uh, My other partner, uh, Jan Lieberman, actually does an incredible job looking at some of the UTXO analysis, looking at holder trends, on-chain exchange flows, a bunch of stuff, and basically some of his takeaways we're, we're starting to see actually, you know, the dispersion of Bitcoin um, from, a, from a, a wallet basis or from the amount of Bitcoin that's out there for smaller holders, that certainly increased. So it's, it's, you know, becoming a bit more widespread. We're seeing, you know, new addresses and wallets, um, that that growth accelerate, uh, which is certainly a, a great sign if you're talking about adoption. Um, and then the um, UTXO trends and looking at things of that nature uh, really tell us that you know a lot of people are still very steadfast in their holdings. And so I think a lot of the volatility recently has sh- shaken out some of the weaker hands, right? So so from our perspective, we've started to kind of formulate this new holder base. And as we start to see again the macro backdrop deteriorate a bit, and you start to see more of these you know large larger, sophisticated uh, institutional investors come into this market, you just have that really strong holder base um, that's there to support it and, and kind of push things, push things along and push price higher. So right now, I mean, again, volatility is certainly something in the short term to be on the lookout for. But, you know, we've never had more conviction in, in you know, the, the long term value proposition of Bitcoin.
0: So t- just to translate what Kevin said uh, to <laughs> our group of audience <laughs> that may not have really caught up into the internal uh, uh, nomenclature or, or vernacular of this industry, a lot of people are interested in Bitcoin because what's happening with money and stimulus right now is driving a lot of concerns about what the future economy holds. in Bitcoin is an alternative. And, and a lot more people are, are certainly finding themselves in the space. Uh, the muggles among us, including uh, J.K. Rowling very recently, oh, who yes. wondered aloud on Twitter, what's Bitcoin all about? But it, it just this kind of dynamic is only increasing.
1: There is no better way. I didn't, and you absolutely summarized that much better than I did. So I appreciate that. And I would say there is no better way. I think I you tweet, there's no better way for anybody out there who's, I wouldn't put JK Rowling in the kind of tier two celebrity status, but if you're a tier two or tier, tier three celebrity, I mean, tweet about Bitcoin and let, let us do the rest because you will get an absolute flock of people liking, retweeting, commenting, DMing, you know, the moment you kind of light that fire, which again... Tying it back to fundamentals in this space, you know, on a final note, I just think is if you're betting against Bitcoin and crypto and this entire industry, then you better dive into this industry and and talk to the people who are working on this stuff because to be honest with you, I've met some of the smartest people I've ever come across in my entire life, working on some projects that you would never, you most people have never even heard of. And so, just having those types of conversations, it makes you all the more bullish on on where we're going in this, you know, parallel digital world that's being built out. Uh, because again, you you never want to bet against innovation. And when you talk to a lot of these people and the conviction they have of what they're building, um, it's it's contagious. It's electrifying. And to be honest, it only um, you know makes us want to kind of double down and, and bend on the hatches um, and really focus on you know where this where this world's going.
0: Well, that's a bet you're making for sure. Uh, trying to help explain it to the rest of us—that's a bet we're making at Forecast News, only because we find it enormously interesting and and really want to just empower people to understand the technology that is shaping the world of tomorrow. If you don't understand it, how can you participate in it? So, you know, if you can if you can start to understand it now. Um, it certainly will hold you in good stead, whatever generation you're from. Uh, and I'm talking
1: Couldn't agree more. From,
0: from my three-year-old to my, you know, to his grandparents. Um, it, it's certainly a, a brave new world. Kevin Kelly, always a pleasure to speak with you. And uh, congratulations again on, on the report. Thanks for uh, translating it for us uh, as much as you did. Um, and we really appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me.
0: And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this latest episode of Word on the Block. I'm Editor in Chief Angie Lau of Forecast News. Until the next time.